0: Hi, this is Macrodisiac. My name is David Bell and welcome to Crypto and Grill.
1: Crypto Dantez here with the very capable Stig of the Pump. Do say hello, Stig.
2: Hello, hello. I've had about 12 coffees today, so I'm Mm -hmm. raring to go.
1: Excellent, excellent. Um, So look, we're here today with another fantastic guest. We say that every week, but they're all brilliant. Um, We're looking forward to getting his perspectives on economics, trading, central banks, Bitcoin, and even his increasing brand and presence. Without further ado, it's David Bell.
0: Welcome, hello. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me on.
1: No, we, look, we really appreciate your time. Um, you have got an increasing uh, number of followers on Twitter these days, and your your brand presence is uh, is really starting to emerge. And uh, it looks like there's a lot going on. It would be great for the people that don't know necessarily who you are um, to give us a quick overview of what you do, your background uh, in general, and your area of focus. And we will we will guide you through the rest of this episode and uh, tap into that. Um, Oversized brain of yours, uh, as we go
0: through. <laughs> you saying I've got a big head? I, I mean, um, your words, not mine. <laughs> um, my name's David Bell. I've been in financial markets since about the age of eighteen, when an advert on YouTube popped up for a retail broker, and I started trading off of demo money, thinking that oh yeah, this is the next big thing. I think I've told this story a billion times, by the way, um, but it, it pretty much came from being targeted um on youtube as i was doing my a levels by like the youtube algorithm when you're searching for stock market and interest rates stuff like that um yeah the broker advert picked up um, my interests and yeah i started then um and then i went and did an economics degree finished there went into broking i've always been trading throughout this time though um and then since then i've really just done things that can accompany my trading in the, in the best ways possible um, i think risk management is a massively important thing for me and it should be for everyone and so at that time when i was really developing having some income while i was um while i was trading my own money was was really really important um, it gives you peace of mind more and allows you to do more things and test more things out in in your trading um, now i I left Broken back in January. Um, I set up Macrodisiac as a response to loads of people telling me that really I should I should go into research. And I thought rather than looking at research roles or anything like that, I'll just do it myself and continue trading my own money. Um, and yeah, this is where we are now. Um, obviously, I spout a lot of shite on Twitter. <laughs> some of it good, some of it bad. But, um, but that's it. That's where we are now.
1: Brilliant. And and just let's. um, So, today we we were hoping for quite a a sprawling um, session covering central banks, the economy, even uh, politics and sort of other um, economic philosophies as well. Um, It'd be good to just start off on on your your call there. So, trading. Um, Would you say um, that economics is a necessary background to get into trading? Does it help? Does it give you an edge or does it give you personally more of an edge over others? Um, And is it something that your average Joe should consider? Because you quite often see these things in the media. Um, You know, I started trading Forex at 18 and now I'm a millionaire. I don't know whether most of them are scams or whether they're real. But uh, what's your advice for anyone that's um, interested in trading um, and would like to think about a career in it?
0: I think, look, if you want to be, be a trader... Um, I'm not sure why you'd actually want to. By the way, <laughs> you must have, have Gordon Gecko, right? Stuff. It's uh, it's yeah, the Wall Street imi- image. You must have something slightly wrong with you. But um, if you want to, if you do want to get into it, you really do have to have to think of anywhere that you can find an edge. Okay, and I think that if you're focusing purely on one discipline, say for example technical analysis, you're missing out on so much more that drives the markets. So you know, although you might be a TA-focused trader, there are things that you can get from other sides of the market, such as looking at economic data and and sentiment and things like that, that can accompany your your technical analysis. Now, I know loads of people just purely look at charts and some are successful, most aren't. Um, But I found for me personally, that having a combination of both is most definitely the best way to go. And I think that I lean more towards looking at The fundamental side of it, looking at macroeconomics and trying to piece together where capital is going to flow from and to. Um, And I do that within a framework of looking at where the narrative is. So where they're where people are talking about something, but where the data is actually saying something else, Um, because you find that when people are talking so much about specific narrative, it's kind of hysterical. There's kind of either ultimate pessimism or ultimate euphoria. When really there's another story brewing that is a really cheap trade idea that you can make you can make money out of and that's the way that I look at it and I don't feel like you can do that completely with just looking at, at technical analysis um, and, and chart-based trading although I do use charts in, in, in my views and to form my trade ideas.
1: Okay, and you're um, you're you're very sort of vocal on um, on Twitter as well. It's, if anybody either doesn't follow you, I would recommend following you. Um, and if you're also not familiar with Twitter, I think it's uh, an amazing source of um, content, research, insight. Um, obviously, don't take it as uh, as rote, but it's um, it's really good to challenge your current uh, narrative or thinking. Um, but a lot of that thinking that you put out there seems to also be reflected in your newsletter, which we'll come on to later. Um, but The the focus for a lot of the newsletter that you publish, um, typically about once or twice a week, um, is around trade ideas, the global economy, the central banks. I was hoping we could take a a broader view at the moment and just reflect and get your views on what's the state of the global economy? There's a lot of debt, there's challenging growth. Um, Where are we? What's the current temperature check in your view?
0: Well, I think that... um... The, the global economy is, is most certainly slowing down. Um, and although I'd love to say, yeah, we need to be short, that's not really the case. The reason being is that we've got central banks that are continuing to ease. Now, I put a video out just last week or the week before about um, Chairman Powell's not QE. And essentially what the Fed are doing is is they're creating a, a narrative. I mentioned narratives before, but what they're doing is they're creating a narrative of their repo operations, which is a a repurchase agreement in government securities as not being QE. Um, But what they've done is that, so let me, sorry, let me just explain what a repo is. Um, It's essentially a way to ease reserves in, in the open market. Okay. So um, the Fed do this in government securities mainly, um, but also they're doing it in mortgage backed securities as well. And a few different other assets. And, what what chairman powell said back in october i believe it was or september was that these repo operations which initially started at just being overnight so you loan basically overnight um sounds sounds like sounds like payday loans for banks kind of yes it's to ease it's to ease short-term funding basically and um and he said it was not qe but if you look at the fed's balance sheet since september it's increased massively Really, really huge. It's been a huge increase based on, um, on such a short time period and compared to what's happened since, um, you know, the start of 2018 when they started, started easing it. And it's, it's changed now from just being an overnight operation into longer term periods. So if you're holding and planning to increase the balance sheet for longer periods, how is that not QE? You know how is that not easing in some way um, to a larger scale, and this is what a lot of people were were saying wasn't happening initially, based on uh, on Powell's initial comments. But really, it is happening now. They've changed. They just did a twenty five billion dollar um, forty two day operation just yesterday, which extends past twenty nineteen. You know, so this balance sheet is going to be elevated at least by by some some amount until past twenty nineteen. so it's definitely QE but
2: why are people trying to conceal it then
0: well you have to you have to think um about what is holding markets up right now it is Fed liquidity and why would the Fed be pumping money into the market if there's not an issue if they don't need to ease credit for example so they're trying to create a narrative of oh yeah it's just a short-term thing when really no there's bigger problems brewing um Many are saying that there's an insolvent bank out there. Now, the one that we'd straight away jump to is probably Deutsche Bank. And I reckon that it's, it's about right because they have really, really cut down operations in the U.S. And they've been moving uh, certain certain bits of their capital into slightly different vehicles as well, which, you know, for them, it sounds like they've kind of shit the bed almost. Um, but, yeah, this this it smells very, very
2: fishy to me. It, and is this is this um, is this thing with the Fed something that's being replicated across the globe with other di- different central banks? No, I mean that the Bank of
0: England have sorry, I just opened a can of coke there. The Bank of England have um, have maintained their their purchases. So, the Bank of England are very much involved in um, in in government bonds and corporate bonds. I think they own about twenty six billion pounds of corporate bonds, um, but this isn't happening. To the same scale, or they're not under, undergoing the same operations as what the Fed are doing at the moment. No.
1: So, so let's take that to sort of a logical conclusion then. So, but what what kind of risk does that put in then? Because you said you mentioned it seems like the Fed is undertaking QE and they're calling it not QE, but it looks like that. Um, what sort of happens if central banks continue to pump money into um, into the markets or, um, or or undertake massive bond purchases, which I guess is what they're doing? Um, you know, we spoke with Daniel Lacayo about this, and and his view is just that 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 bubble um, continues to grow, and at some point it will all come crashing down. Is there is there a sort of waterfall cliff edge moment where everything comes crashing down, or is there a way out of the kind of current expanding debt bubble um, that that we have?
0: well one one thing that that I'm talking to macrodisics about at the moment is actually that government's increasing their spending, which um, if you just heard I think it was just two days ago um, lagarde who is now the obviously the president of the ECB she said that she wants European countries to start turning the taps on in terms of government spending now what happens there is that if governments start to increase spending, the price level increases and Central banks eventually get that CPI increase that they want, but the problem then happens that that comes about is that central banks then need to raise rates. Now, with the state of these corporate bond markets and and really, you know, the the price of yields in general, um, that will cause massive, massive issues. Maybe starting in in emerging market currency uh, countries, where they're heavily indebted to to dollar denominated debt. And if interest rates start to rise based on this massive spending um, in the U.S., I know there's been a narrative of, yeah, we're going to go negative. I don't see it that way. I now see that because of this massive push up in fiscal spending that is occurring across the globe or will occur, um, central banks are going to have to have to start increasing their interest rates to to um, to combat inflation. And. It's essentially governments now monetizing debt, which is which is MMT, which is modern monetary theory. Mm-hmm. Okay, now a lot of MMT proponents will say, "Oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Governments can just print because you know <laughs> they've got a central bank there." But it really, really does when the government starts to monetize debt. Um, and this is the issue that I see. I think there might be some contagion that could start in emerging market um, countries. Where they have borrowed in dollar-denominated debt, and those yields start to spike, so their payments become greater and greater. Um, for example, I think Asia, excluding China, has one point—is it one two trillion? No, sorry, three point two trillion um, dollars worth of dollar-denominated debt. What if the cost of that starts to increase, and some of these countries are going to really, really find it troubling to to pay back? Um, if you look at Turkey, for example, just last the year before last. They had massive issues with with their debt markets, um, and yeah, I mean that's that's the way I see it going. I, so I where do see... you? Um,
1: so what what happens at that point though? If we apply the um, the six year old test, so what? You know, so what if if um, they if, if countries struggle to start paying their debt? What's the sort of, again logical consequence conclusion? How might that materialise for you and I,
0: uh, and the sort of uh, retail consumers? Well, you get a lock-up in liquidity, don't you? Um, if people aren't being paid back, credit risk spikes, uh, liquidity risk uh, spikes, and you see the market lower their bid um, to to a time when, you know, you're getting 50 cents on the dollar or something or even lower, um, it will be another crash. Because if you find that many firms become insolvent or even countries become insolvent, what happens to sentiment then? People shit themselves um, and, you know, they just want to start getting out of the market. That's what happens, and that's the way I see it going, especially with debt levels this high. Um, if you're increasing the cost of, of borrowing, essentially, globally, because of increased fiscal spending, um, which might, it might be very, very good short-term growth, but eventually, because of the, the, the amount of debt that's held, the cost of servicing that debt will be the issue that kind of breaks the camel's back, I think, um, if okay. interest rates do rise concurrently with this increased fiscal spending
2: so so is this kind of is this potentially the last final hurrah for central banks
0: um it's a tricky one it's a really really tricky one i don't think so because they're always going to try and manufacture the way out of it um i I honestly couldn't answer that question it's 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 almost like it's almost like trying to think of another color you know you you only really you um kind of what is you only really what you know, know what yeah what you know really i honestly yeah, yeah. couldn't answer that question about how things would change as central banks went because i yeah. just don't know i do not know
2: no interesting so so if we were to look at europe then so what's the situation specifically in europe with the ecb
0: they're totally fucked that's <laughs> the, that's the simple that's the simple situation with europe um is, is is mean, that a head,
1: an official headline from the FT, or
0: no, uh, should official, we break, should so we break that down a bit? <laughs> It's an official headline for my next newsletter, I think. Okay, <laughs> strong. But but no, I mean, walk us now, through that then. So, you know, the, the ECB and and uh, and and Europe are very much stuck because, although Lagarde has said the countries need to start upping their spending um to, to induce inflation to induce growth whatever they don't have fiscal union okay so she can't force and, and by the way she's saying this as an admittance that monetary policy has failed she can't force countries to adequately and efficiently increase their spending to benefit the whole of the eurozone um, she can't force german taxpayers for example to foot the bill because germany's owed so much from other countries via target too um, well, it's displayed via Target 2 It's not necessarily um, that, that mechanism um, And Target 2 is the gross real-time settlement um, system for, for the Eurozone And it's how central banks borrow between each other Sovereign central banks, that is So, you know, the Bundesbank might borrow to Or lend to, sorry um, The Italian central bank and, and whatnot I don't want to get too deep into that But um, we can do um, But, you know, that it's too fractured. The eurozone is far too fractured for any kind of real policy to be implemented to to save them. I don't think the ECB would be able to raise rates because of this, which may be actually a good thing. But for the foreseeable future, I see euro, the, the euro being the funding currency. Uh, so it's almost like it's almost behaving like the yen, okay, where people are borrowing it to purchase, you know, foreign equities. Um, because it makes up the carry so if you're if you're borrowing at i think it's minus uh minus 0.4 percent which is the eurozone base rate and then you're borrowing at 1.5 percent in the u.s um you're making up what's that uh to 1.9 percent there okay so you're making up that carry based on the interest rate differentials that's how the euro, the euro is going to be used i think continuing and and going forward. Um, But in terms of Eurozone kind of fundamentals, their industrial production is getting pretty, pretty soured. Um, I see employment definitely decreasing based off of this. I mean, if you see Germany's industrial production, for example, has been contracting pretty heavily. I think they might've had a positive, positive print just recently, but still, you know, that's, that's kind of an, an anomaly for the last year or so um and considering that germany is the real the real powerhouse in europe it's it's very difficult to make a case for europe having a big resurgence if germany's if germany's um, kind of in, stuck in the mud um but yeah i mean i i i don't see any real way back for for the eurozone and i think if we want to delve into their banking issues that's another thing we can talk about because there was a piece written in The Telegraph just yesterday, which which for non, non-UK non readers is, is a pretty well-known news- newspaper over here. And they actually have half-decent articles in it. Um, and it was from Ambrose Pritchard Evans, I think it was. He's quite a famous um, financial commentator. And what he said was that the Basel III banking regulations, which is to do with um, the amount of liquidity banks have to hold relative to assets and what collateral they basically have to hold, um, is likely to cause a 4.3 trillion, I think it was dollar or euro, I can't remember specifically, but a massive number, let's put it that way, a 4.3 trillion dollar crunch where banks will have to sell off assets to make up the capital that is held against those assets. Now, if banks have to do this, they're going into even more unprofitable territory, um, and if you consider the Deutsche Bank is really in the shit, um, you know, again, there's another massive systemic risk. But this all stems again. Well, sorry, this doesn't stem from anything. This goes back to what we were talking about with the Fed in terms of shit. Are the Fed really scared about this specific thing? And um, I mentioned I've been mentioning Basel, the Basel regulations, for years because. What Basel allows firms to do is to weigh their assets, weigh internally weigh their their risk. Okay, so let's say, for example, you, um, I don't know, you the, the the capital increased that banks have to hold. Okay, but what they could do was against specific assets, they could make a business case to the regulators that they only need to hold zero point five against um, those assets. So although the the capital has increased they can reduce the risk weights which means that it nullifies the required increase in capital okay so we haven't actually bank capital has not been affected since 2008 which is a really scary thing to mention there's a lot there sorry (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm just trying to
1: digest it. There's something that I think that would be really good diving in a bit further from uh, what you said at the beginning of that um, soliloquy. Um, We... um, Germany. Um, if we just come back to Germany and Italy for a moment, and, and I think it is worth just going into the Target 2 um, issue because it's not something that you see written about, talked about or, or discussed. Um, my high level understanding of Target 2 is that, as you as you said out, it's um, a balanced transfer mechanism or it's a way that allows central banks to effectively fund each other. Um, and at the minute, we have a deficit of approaching a trillion euros, I think, um, that yep. are owed to... Um, Predominantly Germany by Italy, Spain, Portugal, other uh, other Southern European countries. Is mm-hmm. that what kind of risk does that present? And if there is a risk at all of default on that, do we face a situation where either Germany has to leave? the euro and by default the European Union, and therefore you have a a political breakup of the European Union, or is there a situation potentially where Italy defaults and issues a new currency, say a lira, um, but effectively that becomes immediately worthless and we have a kind of a debt cascade? What's your view on on the whole target to Germany-Italy situation?
0: Well, in my view, um, I see it more as, I, I did used to think that it was more of a systemic risk. Now I see it more as a German sentiment risk. The reason being is that, as I said before, Germany's not going to want to foot the bill for, for other nations. OK, and we, we're seeing the end of Angela Merkel pretty soon. And we're probably going to see a new wave of voting patterns because we've had Brexit, for example, and there is some stark euro scepticism Um, And a lot of anti-ECB sentiment in the Eurozone as well. So what I see happening is that the German taxpayer is going to be asked to do something that they really, really don't want to do. And that's going to rile them up into thinking, hang on, you know, we have to reduce our surplus now to 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 keep funding other countries. No, we don't want to do that. And what we're going to see then is is a move towards um, German sovereignty and Germany not wanting to be a part of the euro, them going it alone. Um, that's personally how I see it based on this, because I think it's Germany, uh, Netherlands, Luxembourg and Finland that are the main countries that have a large surplus within the target 2 system. And, you know, they're really not going to Germany's really not going to want to give up its status as a powerhouse in the eurozone. And I think that's where it'll start to start to head. Really, really do. Um
1: Do you think that, that then really starts weakened. to see sort of um a seep into of I guess economic um reasons, seeping into political discourse as well? Because if if Germany leaves the Euro, does that that, that presumably weakens their position um within the European
0: Union? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um it definitely does. I think In fact, it's interesting because it's interesting that you mentioned the political discourse because Angela Merkel just recently, I think in the last few days, um, said directly to Macron, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but she pretty much said, we're sick of having to mop up your, your mess or something like that. Let me try and find it here quickly. And I think, yes, you're absolutely right. Economics is seeping into politics a lot. Because what we have to remember is that the Eurozone is not a, an economic project. It is a political project, but it's been disguised as an economic project. Because if you consider how powerful Germany has become, yes, they were powerful before the Euro. But in 2002, you notice how far their, their surplus went. You know, They are essentially the powerhouse and they don't want to give that up. They're too used to it now. They're too used to being this powerhouse. And with all of these spending rules that the ECB are now trying to uh, well, sorry, not rules, but the, the spending narrative that the ECB are trying to introduce throughout the eurozone, Germany's going to be the one foot in the bill. And they don't want that. They really do not want that. The German taxpayer, they're too proud of a nation. And it does it does just come down to real, really just sentiment rather than any real um, economic rationale from a certain populace it really does just come down to the sentiment and they're not going
2: to want to foot the bill for the rest of the eurozone interesting i was going to dive in are you going to dive in
1: no all yours <laughs> all yours
2: <laughs> so before so before we leave the european union and take a look at the uk um let's talk a little bit about deutsche bank and hsbc so what are the issues there and what could go wrong well um The issues with Deutsche Bank
0: specifically is that they don't have enough return on equity. I think their return on equity is about one, one and a half percent, which is just absolutely crap. Let's put it that way for a tier one investment bank. Um, HSBC, you know, they I I think I mentioned back last year, back last September, I believe it was. They introduced a uh, I think I believe it was a 50 billion facility for 81 bonds which is um i don't know if you've heard of it before a co-convertible bond so if the
1: assume no let's uh let's give our um listeners the benefit of the doubt of course myself and my co-host know exactly what they are to a very detailed degree but uh
0: for the average listener no (laughs) assume right so so what coco bond is is that if the ecti price starts to to drop the bond is then converted to equity to prop up the price. Okay, but the problem here is that when the equity price starts to drop, bondholders then start to hedge their holdings by shorting the equity price. So they start to short the delta. So what happens is that um, you get kind of a feedback loop of shit, this bond is meant to prop up the equity price essentially, but these people holding the bonds are then acting against the interest of the of the the bond instrument, and they then start to short it and if you get mass shorts going on at one time, you get fucked don't you um and <laughs> the fact that the fact that um these banks have issued so so many of these these eighty ones could be a could be a risk could be quite a big risk h s b c did issue um a load as I said back in September, so you have to wonder why they're looking to do this um and surely it's down to to firm seeing stresses
2: and so now taking it back to the uk full circle so talk to us about the state of the current uk economy um it's a tricky one
0: i personally think that we're doing okay and i say okay very tentatively because i think we're right on that line of shit we could actually just start slipping into what germany's like at the moment um i think services are down a little bit they're contracting which is obviously the uk's pretty much the uk's largest contributor to gdp um but we're still growing growing slightly i think it was 0.2 percent for q 0.3 this week 0.3 okay yeah that's the one um so we're doing okay now the problem that i see for it's not actually a problem it's actually a very clear problem um, is, for the pound specifically, is if we get a, a Labour government, because what they're going to end up doing is just kicking the can down the road for Brexit and that uncertainty. And currency markets do not like uncertainty. If we get a Tory government then I'll be buying the pound, that's pretty much against the, the euro. Um, that's pretty much a given because it just makes sense to do so. It's a, it's a relatively easy trade for, for six months, I'd say. Um But labor spending plans as well, and the Tories as well, to be to be quite honest with you, both of them are just ridiculous, and I reckon only about ten percent of what they're saying um, in the manifestos will come to fruition I think we'll we'll kind of get a massive backtracking when we get to having to implement all of these policies, and we'll just be in the same shit you know because what what labor are trying to do is to appease the the swing voters that kind of lean a little bit left or who are a bit sick of the last kind of 10 years of Tory Tory government um and the Tories are almost trying to do that as well but trying to appease the smaller business owners and the middle classes um I, I don't see any of them being really any good I, I hate both of them um
2: and, and then also, what about I don't know. but Sorry, what God. about the alternatives
0: there aren't any alternatives to no, shy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're all shy. Lib Dems Lib Dems aren't even a party. Don't get me started on them. They're just a bunch of absolute weirdos just who've, who've come out of the pub half pissed and have said, yeah, let's just go and write a manifesto. Joe Swinson, what's she doing? up? A, she was up a crane yesterday, smiling like a nutter. Don't like her. <laughs> um, Green Party, no, don't like them. They have some good policies in terms of land value tax that I like. However it's not the way that it should be implemented and again they're just um identitarian politicians really um just like the labor party they're progressive nutcases Don't then like what,
2: them. but then what do you see for the future of politics in the uk um
0: personally get rid of them all um introduce so basically i'm a georgist i think we've we've mentioned that we're going to get onto that bit mm. um i'm a georgist and these What is a Georgist? I, sorry so basically Georgists agree with um, socialists that capitalism and, um, and basically certain monopolies provide stark inequalities. But then they agree with capitalists that socialism um, creates a government monopoly that rarely is better than, than private monopolies. Mm-hmm. So essentially we look to eradicate the privilege and i hate this word because it's been changed into some weird thing by by left-leaning progressives but to tax away privileges and only only keep 100 percent of your wealth if it's from productive activity so productive activity what's that that's taking risks yourself um so say you set up a business there'd be zero corporation tax zero capital gains tax um, if you go to work and you earn income, you don't get any, you don't get taxed on income. However, the biggest, the biggest way that people have earned, they haven't earned this wealth, um, is by sitting on land. Okay. So let's say you, um, you buy a house in the center of London when it was, you know, the start of this century. Okay government comes in and builds all of this infrastructure drives up the price of your your house by many many millions okay you've done absolutely nothing to earn that it's been the total public and the 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 government and what's going on around you to cause that price of land to to be driven up you personally have done nothing okay and this is on the unimproved value of land by the way so if you do your house up and whatever fine you don't get taxed on that it's purely on the location of the land um if you live, say you live near a crossrail station, for example, to put it into a, a more modern day context, um, the price of your land is probably going to go up more. But you've personally done nothing to cause that land price to go up. OK. Um, and the, the benefit of this is that taxing land is purely efficient because you can't increase the supply of land. Which makes it perfectly inelastic. If you if you know about um, looking at supply and demand charts, graphs, sorry, from economics, a a supply curve normally goes from um, the bottom left to the top right, whereas the supply curve for land goes vertical. So then, if if you change that demand in any way, you get a perfectly you get a perfect change all the way down in in on the supply curve. Okay, which just changes the price. So if you consider that all the money supply that has been increased um, from central banks pushes into into land, okay, which just drives the price up. So this is why you see problems with with house prices, problems with high rent, for example. And this has all happened after um, 2008 when governments have undergone QE and low interest rates. Because landowners know that you know the supply of land can't increase, so just sit on it. If the money supply is going to go up, that's why houses are so expensive. It's nothing to do with government policy or building more houses. We have more households than we have more uh, houses than households in the UK. So surely that means that that supply outstrips demand, which it does. Um, the problem is, is those people that just sit on land, empty houses. Um, and if you were to tax those, you tax away the, the benefits of just not making productive use of that land, and that's the key. Land needs to be put to productive use, and and not just looked at as a rent-seeking tool. Interesting views there. It's uh, not something that I'm familiar
1: with, so I think we'll uh, we'll take that away as a point of research. But um, thank you for the overview. Um, if we just on sort of hot on the heels of that sort of tax reforms uh, and other things that could be. Be done. Um, I think just to summarise your your points, you know, Labour. Um, we, we've got a, an election coming up in the UK. A Labour government would largely be damaging on the basis that actually the um, the printing of money would only get worse, and the uh, nationalisation of all kinds of industries would make them effectively largely anti- uncompetitive um, for the next kind of ten years. Um, a Tory government will keep things privatised. In the form that they are, um, but will continue to print money as well. Um, And uh, as you said, appeal to those people that might be um, currently centrist leaning labour. Regardless of sort of the outcome. Let's assume uh, for a moment, let's assume for a moment that, um, yeah, the outcome doesn't matter. What are the steps that the UK could take outside of Europe? So let's assume we, we go forward with Brexit um, relatively close to the, the plan that's set out at the moment. What are the things that could be done to make sure that the UK remains competitive on a global scale um, in the face of all of these economic headwinds uh, and challenges that we've, we've talked about over the last sort of
0: 35 minutes? Well, um, become, um, become more like Singapore, for example. OK, Singapore has have, have pretty much a land value tax, um, but they're one of the most deregulated countries in the world. We are focused primarily on services. Why are we abiding by these um, really risk-distortionary um, regulations that come out of things like MIFID II, for example, in the financial sector? Why are we abiding by these when they're actually creating more problems than than helping? The financial regulations coming out of Europe are distorting markets so massively. And now alongside other things, of course, like central bank policy and whatnot. But they're distorting markets so massively um, that it's creating far bigger problems than than any utility gained from it. And I know it's a reaction to 2008, and I know loads of people did things wrong in 2008. But again, 2008 was born out of government regulations. OK, it was born out of governments pretty much underwriting banks. So why don't we just let banks fail, for example? Why do we need this regulation to underwrite banks? If, if, bankers, didn't, if bankers knew that they weren't going to be bailed out, then they wouldn't have undergone those those crazy practices of creating subprime loans and, and all of that. You know, it's crazy to me that people want more regulation from governments, which are so inefficient um, in terms of both spending and coming up with real practical, efficient solutions. Um, that it, it just astounds me that people still want more government. It just doesn't make sense in my head. I don't know why. Um, that's the way that I think we need to go, is to really deregulate and remove government interference in, mm. in sectors that don't need it because markets do tend to work themselves out better when there's no distortion from, from things like government subsidies, um, from increased taxes. Corbyn wants to, to introduce a, a, a financial transaction tax. Okay, What it essentially means, and I saw someone break it down on, um, on LinkedIn is that he wants to basically tax uh, financial the financial industry at 12 percent? That's what they worked out. That they want an increase, an added increase of 12 percent. That's how it works out when you incre- when you look at the margin marginal tax um, of what you know the the contribution to the financial sector to to uh, GDP would would work out at. That's how much of an increase he wants. Now, is that really making the UK competitive when services are the biggest industry? No. So what does he want? It doesn't make sense. He wants growth, but he wants it all in the government's hands or something. Does he think the government is going to increase growth when really, you know, it's the private sector that provides these taxes for the government? It doesn't make sense in my head. So this is why I think we need a totally total revision on on regulations.
2: So what what do you think is going to be the impact of this election on the City of London? Because on one hand, it could lose its financial services industry after Brexit as a result of banking passports. But on the other hand, a Labour government could change it instrumentally as well.
0: Um, There's a big misconception with regards to passporting. Um, We all know back in 2016 that there was the fear around, oh, yeah, um, we won't be able to access Europe and whatever um during during the the referendum period if we were to to leave the the eu um it's absolute nonsense because 95 percent of the city's business is in wholesale financial activities and five percent is in retail so that that 95 percent of of business isn't actually covered by passporting okay if i am you know i don't know goldman sachs sitting in in london and i want to deal with i don't know jp morgan that sits in paris there's absolutely nothing stopping me from doing that because of my client type or my customer type banks are considered eligible counterparties which means they're pretty much outside the scope of a lot of regulation in the sense that in the sense of what people understand regulation to be then below that you've got professional clients and then you've got retail clients which yes they will be affected by um, passporting so people that trade at fx brokers for example and are considered retail they will be affected but not the big banks not the people that are doing most of the city's business and if you're a retail broker you can go and set up in europe and you create a subsidiary there's no issue um and you'll notice that this fear mongering over the city losing tens of thousands of jobs has that happened no about i think it's less than a thousand jobs have moved and that's purely in back back office functions most of the time so it's just it's a total shit show that that people didn't recognize this sooner and it was so easy to to recognize as well because if you've done your level four which is the the regulation you need to be able to the sorry the the certification you need to be able to deal with, with um, in customer functions at, at any regulated entity, you'll know those three different client types and you'll know the regulations behind them. And no one picked up on this. It, it astounds me, totally mm-hmm. astounds me. So if, the other thing as well, if you're, if you're a fund manager, um, you can register your fund in, in Dublin or Luxembourg, but you can sit in London and have your practice there. So what's the difference? There's no difference whatsoever. It's just a load of bollocks coming out of people's mouths who don't understand anything practically.
2: Not that after that I'm trying to usher you towards an end, but um, I'm just very conscious of time. And probably our listeners are going to be thinking, when are they actually going to talk about anything crypto related? (laughs) Um, So on that, what are your views of Bitcoin as an asset class? Um, I
0: actually... I actually wrote about this a few, I think it was last month or something. Um, People always talk about Bitcoin as a store of value versus an asset class. Whereas my thinking is that it can be totally both. The reason is, is because back in 2018 cash was considered the best performing asset class. So what do some people consider Bitcoin? Yeah. Well, they consider it to be a digital currency, right? Whereas others consider it to be a store of value. It totally depends on your utility of it. Um, it for me i personally don't care as much i just look to um profit on the upside well sorry take profit when it's moving down and make sure that i'm i'm flat if it comes back to to entry um and convert it into cash i see it as just a trading instrument like i see everything else i don't really see it as i'm not you know religious about it i think it's very interesting to see how a brand new asset class works within the wider economy and uh, macroeconomic shocks and stuff like that. But for me personally, um, I, I just don't. Yeah, I don't really have a massively religious opinion about it.
2: Do you? Do you see it becoming more and more of a haven or a hedge against instability?
0: Yes. I think, for example, if you look at um, when China and Hong Kong was experiencing some issues, well I mean, they still are. But we saw quite a lot of capital flows coming out, didn't we? Um, and into Bitcoin. I think possibly. Yeah. But again, it totally depends on your, your thinking behind it, whether it is just an asset class to trade or you do genuinely see it as a store of value. People have different reasons for buying equities, for example. You know, some want to look at the long term. Whereas others just look to make money up and down. Um, it just totally depends on what your, your horizon is, in my view.
1: And when you speak about Bitcoin publicly, you quite often say that you see uh, a neat link between euro dollar futures and Bitcoin. Uh, what's the sort of link there? Where does that originate? Is it just a, uh, something that's working at the moment or is there something more fundamental behind it?
0: Well, my thinking is that it, it shows, it can show um, dollar liquidity. And a lot of people don't really look at the the dollar side of the equation when they're looking at Bitcoin. Um, I'm not sure why, but the only real macro link that I've found is to do with dollar liquidity. When dollar liquidity is up, then Bitcoin tends to tend to rise. It tends to rise in value, and when dollar liquidity is down, it tends to it tends to fall. Um, recently, it didn't it didn't work very well, but from February to about August of this year, it worked really really well. Um, and what myself and someone else was doing was we were looking at um the extent to which the the volatility of euro dollar futures influenced the price of bitcoin and we saw kind of a lag of maybe 32 to 48 hours on the moves um so if bitcoin that if uh, euro dollar volatility spiked by a certain amount i'm not going to say what it was because it might reduce my edge but, <laughs> hmm. but um but um, we, would, we would note down what happened um, after and to the Bitcoin price. And yeah, there was considerable correlation there. Um, it's difficult to create a real causation for it. But my view is that it does come down to dollar liquidity.
1: Cool. Um, look, we are rapidly running out of time. Um, this is, as you know, the Crypto and Grill podcast and it would not be an episode without asking you the uh, infamous question of if all of the world's traders were coming around to your flat um, overlooking the Thames in London, uh, which is where I picture you in some kind of penthouse, Um and, and you're hosting I mean, yeah
0: i'm looking at it right
1: now <laughs> you're you, you hosting a rooftop barbecue uh to take care of them for the afternoon what would you stick on the grill and um and how would you uh, look after your guests
0: it's a tricky question um you're not vegan, are you are not be are on the grill it's probably the, the grill, easiest question probably, of today but yeah <laughs> i'd probably i probably stick jeremy corbyn's manifesto on the grill i'm joking i wouldn't um <laughs> Let's, go, let's, just go for, let's just go for premium meat burgers. Co- is it is it Wagyu beef? Wagyu. Let's burgers. go for that. A Wagyu yeah, beef. Wagyu burgers. Pure pure Wagyu burgers. You're coming round for a Wagyu party.
1: Nice. I think you probably have a Wagyu steak rather than a burger, but <laughs> uh, I mean, probably...
0: <laughs> no, we mix it up. You can get Wagyu burgers as well. Yeah, Nice. I'm pretty sure I've had a Wagyu burger before.
1: Excellent. Um, and um, look, um, it's been great having you on. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about the Macrodesic brand and what you've got um, coming up over the next 12 months?
0: Yeah, so um, Macrodesic, what we do there is we, well, I <laughs> come up with, um, with ways to look at the market that, that other people aren't really focused on. We operate within the same framework each time, which is looking at where the data doesn't match the narrative or vice versa. And we come up with the best ways and cheapest ways to action that specific idea, whether it is in ETFs or FX or equities, whatever. Um, we go across all asset classes. Um, and also there's a risk management framework as well that you can you can abide to, which, which really, really does help. There's a community of about... 100 to 200 traders there on um on discord and yeah it's a really really fun thing to do and and it's not too long and boring um and yes i do swear in it as well
1: i think we know that's uh that's part and parcel with uh with you so uh, but we love you anyway um you're the the
2: first guest you're the first guest (laughs) that didn't ask permission to swear oh really (laughs) yeah Uh, do you know what
0: i've done it so many times now and everyone's giving me the same answer so it's kind of like (laughs) it must just be a common thing in the podcast now um so
1: as well as uh, as well as that um is there anything else i know you've got um you have uh, an occasional podcast as well and you're developing a training course um are they continuing or they want to
0: um not so sure about the training course because pretty much macrodisiac is the training is learning via osmosis um But, um, yeah, I've got a podcast, Macrodisiac Podcast. It is on Spotify, Apple Music, and I've got a YouTube channel as well. Just Google Macrodisiac. And you can see all the videos that I've done um, with myself speaking to the camera and podcasts. And a couple of bits with Adam Webb as well, who is a really big options market maker. He knows his stuff a lot better than I do. Um, But, yeah, you can check all those out.
1: Cool. Well, um, before we sign off, do you want to give your newsletter a quick plug? Uh, how let people know how they can sign up. And um,
0: yeah, it's been great having you on. Yep. Just go on to macrodisiac.com. Um, there is currently a discount running as well. Um, and yeah, you can just log on there and check me out. Awesome. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance.